0: You can open to chapter 1 and verse 21, and I hope you guys have been uh, reading through it on your own. I think there is something about us as a church, obviously preaching through a book, and as individuals just working through that on our own, you know, going deeper and deeper into the text, uh, asking the Spirit what He's saying to us, studying it, and memorizing some of this so that it goes in deep into our hearts and can bring change. Uh, If you don't know the book of Philippians, or if you're new to the Bible, it is a four-chapter quick read-through. You could probably read it in about 15 minutes, but it is absolutely densely packed, and it's written by Paul the Apostle, this leader in the early church, to a church like this meeting in a city called Philippi, and he writes to encourage them to live with joy in the midst of suffering and to hold on to Jesus and the gospel. And I think it's so relevant for us at the moment. You know, I think this is the kind of book for us as individuals and us as a church at the moment that we can really anchor ourselves in and take hold of Jesus and let him speak to us through and help us through the trying times that we're living in. So uh, we'll get into Philippians 1 verse 21 in just a second. But I had the privilege last year of going to Tunisia in North Africa, if you've never heard of it before. And I went to the city of Tunis, the capital city, and I went there because we as a church have been supporting some people who are working on a church plant there. We've been praying for them. Krista, who is over there, has been leading a group of people praying monthly for this plant, praying for Tunis in Tunisia. Probably less than 200 evangelical Protestant Christians meet in a gathering like this in the whole of Tunisia on a Sunday, which is a crazy thought. So we've been praying for them. This church has given generously to them. And I think like Tari is saying, you know, I love that this is a generous church. So I got to go and I got to check out what is happening on the ground there. And it was a very interesting experience. Um, I've gotten to see a lot of Southern Africa. I'm born and bred in Durban. I've always lived here. I've gotten to see a lot of South Africa. But I've also gotten to visit Zimbabwe and Mozambique and Zambia and Lesotho and Eswatini And Botswana, I haven't been to Namibia yet, but that is something I'd love to do, touch that last country that touches South Africa. But I got to go to Tunisia in the north of Africa, and it was so, so different to anything I've experienced in the south of Africa. I say that because Tunis has been significantly influenced by both France and the Middle East. And you see it on the signs around the city, both the French language and kind of Arabic text on the signs. You see it in the architecture, in the foods, the sights and sounds, the clothing. The people don't look like Southern African people. They just look so, so different. And I even got to go to a Tunisian barber and get like my beard sorted out. They did that threading thing, which if you know how that works, it's very, very sore with multiple threads just kind of pulling hair out of my face. But like different cultural experience to anything I'd done here. But it was very different. So this is the city of Tunis. And I got to visit and walk around and see it. And probably the most surreal moment for me is I was walking down the street called the Avenue Habib Bourguiba. You can go to the next photo, Shepard. And this is it. It's like very, very beautiful. Um, If you can see that kind of plant-lined or tree-lined street, that's it. And it reminded me so much of Paris because it is modeled after the Champs-Élysées. It looks just like that street in Paris. Uh, You can go to the next photo. This is people down that little walkway. There were tables on the sides of the roads, people smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and just enjoying life there. And it was so weird for me to remind myself, I am in Africa, you know? This looks like Paris, everyone looks Middle Eastern, but here I am in the northernmost tip of Africa, and that is where I am. And I share that because in week one of the series, we spoke about how the city of Philippi was a colony of Rome. You know, it was linked to the mother city of Rome. And the Roman citizens that lived there, or sorry, the people who lived in Philippi were Roman citizens. This town was a Roman colony, and it had been modeled after the city of Rome. So the architecture looked the same. The streets were laid out the same. People dressed the same. They spoke the same language. They used the same coins. It was like Rome Jr. here in the city of Philippi. And these people were really proud and patriotic of the fact that they were Roman citizens. They loved Caesar They loved Rome, and they loved this privilege that they had. And into the midst of that context, Paul preaches this message, or writes this letter that we're in today. And it is so interesting, but also very, very subversive. So let's see what verse 21 says. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You might have heard that verse before. It's one of the best known verses in the Bible. It's one of the greatest hit verses in Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, Contending together for the faith of the gospel. Christians contend for the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents, because they had opponents that were frightening. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Part of the calling to follow Jesus is to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. In this passage, we see the central verse in the whole book of Philippians. And it's not verse 21, to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's actually another verse a little bit further on, verse 27, that says, As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you're going to memorize one verse out of Philippians. Get this in your heart and mind as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And there's a lot going on in this verse. So I want to start at the surface level, but I want to say that this goes a lot deeper. And I think we can be a kind of church that reads through the Bible at a surface level, and we take in what's being said, and maybe we apply some of it. But I'd love us to be the kind of church that does go a little bit deeper, and digs under the surface, and sees some of the treasures of what God is saying in his word by studying it and going through it and meditating it on memorizing it for ourselves. But let's start at the surface. It starts and says, as citizens of heaven, which is our identity. That is who we are in Christ. If you're a Christian today, you're a citizen of heaven. And then it goes on and it says, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's our activity. That is what we do as followers of Jesus or as citizens of heaven. We live a life worthy of the gospel. And this is the way the New Testament works. It tells us who we are as Christians, and then it shows us how we should live in light of who we are as Christians. And we actually sung that tonight in that final song. You know, it's who I am. I'm losing the words. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. But who I am is loved by you. You know, that is my identity. And that's one of the things we saw in the book of Ephesians that we studied a few years back. The first three chapters of Ephesians talk identity. No commands, just who we are in Christ. And then chapter 4, verse 1 starts with the first command. Now in light of who we are, this is how we live. And that's what we're learning. We're learning who we are in Jesus and how we live as followers of Jesus. And verse 27 also is the first command in this whole letter. So Paul's just been riffing so far in the first 26 verses. He's been sending greetings, peace to you, grace to you. He's been talking about his prayer for them, talking about the gospel, talking about a bunch of different things. And now he starts with a first command. And I've left it out of part of that verse. But verse 27 starts with the words, just one thing. Just one thing. Karl Barth, speaking about this says it's almost like Paul is raising a finger to get our attention. This is really important. This matters, just one thing. And then he says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I think at face value, that's interesting. And you can go, cool, Grant, I get it. That's who we are. We're citizens of heaven. This is what we do. Live our lives worthy of the gospel. I think I can think that through. I I guess I can know what a citizen of heaven is. I guess I know what it means to live in light of that. And my hope would be, in light of that, we would leave here and live differently. We would live as citizens of heaven in Durban on Monday morning, on Tuesday, on Wednesday night throughout the week. But there's so much more going on in the verse than just that. So we want to scratch below the surface. This was fully loaded for the Philippian church. It's like punch after punch after punch going on in here. I don't know if any of you watched the fight this morning. No one watched Lopez versus Loma. Just Josh and I. No one else, honestly, no one else watched it. It was amazing to watch these two boxers go face-to-face. The one was called the best pound-for-pound boxer in the world, and he was incredible. And these two men, punch after punch, getting in there. That is what is going on in Philippians 1 verse 27. The church is getting a lot of truth downloaded through this verse. So let me explain why. For most of us, wherever you go in Durban tomorrow, if you were to tell someone you're a Christian, they wouldn't be too fazed by that. You know, they might not agree with that or they might not approve. They might think being a Christian is crazy or it's kind of an uneducated thing or it's old fashioned or it's, you know, you're stuck in the past. You haven't seen some of the things they've read and watched. But they'd probably say, that's fine. You're free to practice your own faith. Do your own thing. You know, I'm not going to stop you. You do you. As long as you don't hurt anyone else or affect anyone else, you're free to practice your faith and believe whatever you believe. So we think of a personal faith. But in Philippi and in the Roman Empire, believing what Paul believed and what he's teaching and what he's saying here was dangerous and revolutionary and subversive. What what Paul said and what Jesus said were very, very radical. And remember, Paul is in prison for preaching and saying this stuff. He's not just saying, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven one day. There's a lot more going on here. And these views are not just personal. These are political, these are economic, these are cultural, these are spiritual. But what Paul is saying affects not just the individual, but everything. If you believe what Paul is saying, it means you have a completely different way of seeing reality. Because you believe and worship Jesus as a different king. You're saying you are part of a different kingdom. And you're saying that you believe in a completely different gospel to everyone around you. So let me explain those three ideas a little bit more. Why is worshiping Jesus as king and saying Jesus is Lord so controversial? You know, in Durban today, it's not so bad. But in the Roman Empire, it was radical. So a little bit of a history lesson. Some of you have heard of Julius Caesar, one of the great Roman emperors. He was killed on the Ides of March in 44 BC. A little bit later in July, there was a comet that went through the sky. And his adopted son, Octavius, who later called himself Augustus, said, that comet in the sky is my father ascending to heaven and everyone in the Roman Empire went wow that's amazing and in 42 BC they deified him in the Roman Empire they said Julius Caesar is God which would make Augustus the son of God and poets celebrated this divinity they built new temples and monuments and artwork in his name there were coins about Augustus Caesar the son of God that went all around the empire And to many, this Roman civilization was such a good thing. It brought stability, it brought wealth, it was progress, and people celebrated it. And the emperors who who ruled, the Caesars at that time, said to the people that they should have faith in their Lord and Savior, Caesar. I don't know if you guys are familiar with any of these words I'm throwing out. They sound a little bit similar to church words, eh? Caesar is Lord became the cry of the Roman Empire. And another one that might sound familiar to you was another propaganda statement that was used all around Rome. It was this, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Caesar. It sounds so similar to something you might have heard before, because in Acts 4 verse 12, some of the apostles are preaching about Jesus, and they take the statement and they say, there is salvation in no other name. There's no other, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than Jesus. Now, everyone else goes, Caesar, they go, no, 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 Jesus. Jesus is the only name. And this was radical. You see, Caesar was worshipped as God. He was celebrated as God by the people of that day. But here the church is saying, no, no, Caesar isn't God. Jesus is God. And if they didn't declare Caesar is Lord, if they said, no, Jesus is Lord, they were in danger of losing their lives or going to jail like Paul was. Last week, if you were here, I spoke out of John 20 about why we gather like this. And I talked about Thomas having a moment in church, a church service like this, an ordinary Sunday gathering where he got it. He had a revelation that Jesus is Lord and he looked him in the eyes and he said, my Lord and my God. I didn't know this last week, but actually what he was doing there was alluding to the fact that the emperors like to be called Dominus et Deus Noster," That's in Latin for our Lord and our God. So what Thomas is doing He's taking a phrase that was only used of the Roman emperors and he's applying it to Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus, everyone says they are Lord and God, but it's really you. Very, very subversive. So you can see that saying Jesus is Lord in that day and age would have been radical. It's not just your personal belief, this is a political belief, an economic belief, a cultural belief, a belief about who really is in charge, who rules and reigns, who is God. And it's a statement about reality. If you're saying Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar isn't. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but next week in Philippians chapter 2, we'll be talking about this next Sunday, Paul writes something which I imagine the Philippian church would have freaked out about. He puts this in his letter, and I can imagine them gathered around like this, and this letter being read, and when they get to verse 9 to 11 of Philippians 2, the congregation went, wow, like this is, this is trouble, simple. Like this is going to get us in trouble. He says, for this reason, God highly exalted him. Not talking about Caesar, talking about Jesus. And gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Not at the name of Caesar. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess, including Caesar, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. To The glory of God the Father. Christians believed. That Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. That every knee, including Caesar's, would bow to Jesus one day. And every tongue would confess, not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he rules and reigns over everything. That he's the true son of God. I hope as you hear what I'm saying, you're sitting there going, I thought it was hard to share about my faith today. (laughs) But imagine being in Philippi. Imagine being in the Roman Empire, trying to share about Jesus with your family and friends and the mindsets they've got. That must have been really, really tough and really, really scary. So that's the first thing, Jesus the King. The second thing is Christians believed in a completely different gospel. Now, I find this so problematic because when I use the word gospel, you think church stuff. I think church stuff. You know, we we think a music style or choirs or, I don't know, gospel music awards. But the word gospel wasn't a church word back in the day. It was an everyday word. It was a word used by the Everyone, you know, everyone knew that word and used that word. So the Greek word we know is evangelion for for good news or good news of victory. But this was something that the church co-opted and used to speak about the news of Jesus. But the Roman Empire was using it to speak about the good news of Caesar. You see, the Roman Empire or the imperial cult, those who worshipped Caesar as Lord, used this word to announce Caesar's victories, his birthdays. Those would be celebrated to announce his ascension to power and his granting of salvation to people. And they would send these heralds or gospel preachers everywhere in the empire to announce the good news of who Caesar was and what Caesar had done. But for us in the church instead, you know, we believe in the birth, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection, in the victory of King Jesus. And we are announcing his salvation and that his kingdom has come. Everywhere we go. For Christians, our hope and salvation isn't found in Caesar. It's not found in empire. It's not found in any of those things. It's found in Jesus and in his kingdom. Now, hopefully you see why Philippians 1.27 is so controversial. Christians serve a different king. We're loyal to a different kingdom. And we put our trust and hope in a different gospel. So if you were following Jesus in Philippi back in the day... That meant that you were rejecting so much of the way Philippi and Rome worked. You, know, you were saying, I can't do that. I don't believe in that. I live a different way. It meant that being a Christian meant you had to be different. You couldn't be like everyone else in the Roman Empire. It meant you had to say no to things that others didn't say no to. It meant meant you had to make choices that others didn't have to choose. It meant you had priorities that other people didn't prioritize. Because you had a different king, you were part of a different kingdom, and you followed a different message. And it's the same for us in Durban today. You can imagine uh, for a new Christian in Philippi who had lived their whole life in the Roman Empire and was just used to this way of doing things, that this kind of message would have been pretty mind-blowing. You know, you get excited about Jesus. You've had that revelation, you know, Jesus, you're my Lord and my God. But now all of a sudden, you're going, wow, like this this is so different to what I've known before. And you might be a new Christian here tonight, or, or you might be exploring the faith and going, this seems so different to how I've grown up. Like, this is a different world to what I know or the culture I'm used to or one of those things. I want to say that's okay. This is new mindsets, new priorities, new actions, new decisions. This is a whole new way of life centered around Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you have no idea what I'm talking about or those songs we sung made no sense to you or this church thing is a bit confusing, that's okay. You're learning a new way you've got questions, ask them. There's a bunch of people in this room who would be able to answer them and help you and help you to grow in your faith. And if that takes time, that's okay. Now, we are learning as a community what it is to know the teachings of Jesus and obey them and live them out in a very different world to Philippi 2,000 years ago. But that does mean some learning for us and some unlearning and some growing and some changing and some adjustment and some messing up too. And I want to say it's okay to mess up as you learn to follow Jesus as long as we keep going forward together with him. So what I'm talking about here with all of this is really what it means to be a citizen. And that's the third really subversive part of this verse. The people of Philippi were really proud that they had been made a Roman colony and that they were Roman citizens and the privileges and the prestige of all of that. And some of you might know something about that. I think I do a little bit. I I was born here in Durban, but my mom was born in Scotland, in Glasgow, and she lived there till she was four, then she moved to Zimbabwe, and then at 16, which still blows my mind, she moved to Johannesburg and started working and has lived in South Africa ever since. But because she was born in Scotland, I have a British passport, which means I'm a South African citizen, but I'm also a British citizen. I've got the privileges and rights of a South African and the privileges and rights of someone from the UK. And it's been interesting to live with that, you know? So when I talk about that trip I did to Tunis, I flew via Dubai. And on the way back, I had an evening in the airport, which sounds like a nightmare. But because I'm a British citizen and I have a British passport, I could leave the airport and go out and explore Dubai. Got some friends there, got to see them, see their home because I'm a British citizen. I couldn't as a South African. Would've had to have paid for a visa and done all sorts of things. There's privileges to citizenship. There's, there's, yes, a price you pay. Yes, there's responsibilities, but there's privileges too. For me, this evening, I don't know how the flights work at the moment, but in theory, I could go to the airport, hop on a plane, fly to the UK, and just live there because it's a birthright I have. I am a British citizen, and I can live there. So Paul, when he writes this, isn't against their Roman citizenship. He's not pro it. He's not against it. He's just speaking about it because he wants them to realize, like me, I'm South African and British, I'm a dual citizen, that they are dual citizens of heaven and of Rome. See, as Roman subjects, they are citizens of the far distant city of Rome and the emperor who lives there and of his kingdom. And for us and for them as citizens of heaven, we are citizens of that city, the heavenly city, and of the king of kings who sits on his throne and whose kingdom is advancing over all things. And we've got the privileges and the responsibilities of being his citizens. And what Paul is saying here to these Christians in Philippi is something like, for you living in the Roman colony of Philippi, live as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. And it's the same for us. For you, as a citizen of South Africa, as a Durbanite, live a life worthy of your heavenly homeland, your heavenly citizenship which is very subversive, to loyal, patriotic Philippian people who loved Caesar, who loved their identity, he's saying there is another colony at work in Philippi, the colony of heaven, loyal to a different king, that's trusting in a different message. What the Roman Empire would do, and I think we're kind of familiar with colonies, is that they would send out these colonies to extend their empire and to extend power, and to increase their influence, and just to spread civilization, the Roman civilization, all around the world. And each one of those colonies was an outpost of the empire. And similarly, each church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. As the kingdom of God extends, these colonies of heaven are planted in each different place representing him. So when someone visited Philippi, kind of like those pictures I showed you, they'd recognize the architecture they'd say, oh, you look like the Romans. Look at what you're wearing. I love the way you speak. You sound just like my friends in Rome. I get the coins. I get all of this. This is familiar to me because I know Rome. And the idea here is that if people came into this congregation tonight, that this is a colony of heaven, that we are citizens of heaven, that they should experience a foretaste of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven amongst us. I was on Twitter today and like reading the comment section on any social media is so dangerous but it was just people ragging on the church and just speaking about their hurt and their pain in the church and what they'd experienced and sadly maybe even for you sitting here tonight that's your story but the idea is that in the church we're all imperfect people we're all sinners we all need the grace of God but that we are learning to be citizens of heaven and a colony of heaven here in Durban the way that Durban works Now, some of you might be sitting here going, interesting history lesson, Grant. Thank you so much. I've learned about the Roman Empire, the imperial cult. I didn't know that thing about Caesar ascending to heaven, the whole comet thing. Fascinating. But I've got stuff to do. Monday's coming, and this is not too relevant to my life. It is. It really, really is. Let me explain why. Whether you're a Christian or not here tonight, we're wrestling with the three things that are going on in verse 27. Which Lord will you worship and serve? Which kingdom are you loyal to? Which kingdom are you living as a part of? And which gospel do you put your hope and trust in? Now, you might not use those words when you think about these things, but this is the stuff of everyday life. This is the stuff of Monday morning. This is the stuff of interacting with each other and people outside of the church. This is the stuff of everyday life that might just look a little bit different than what we see in Philippians. So let me explain a little bit more. We might never have said money is Lord, but we worship and serve money. We might never have said work is Lord, but we've got this religious devotion to our work. We might never have said pleasure is Lord or family is Lord, but we actually live in such a way that our lives worship and serve those things. Literally the zeal, the energy, the time we put into these things is more like religious devotion than it is just being a part of Durban. Or maybe another way of looking at it when we talk about the kingdom is we live in the city of Durban. Maybe some of you are just visiting at the moment. But Durban has got a way to it. Durban has got a worldview. Durban is filled with different cultures, strong ways of doing things. Durban is a kingdom. It's an empire of itself. And we are citizens of Durban, but we're also citizens of heaven. And that means sometimes we can't do things in the way of Durban. I'm sure some of you have experienced this at work or with friends of yours, where there's peer pressure to do something that you know is not the way of a citizen of heaven. And you've had to say no. And you say, I can't. Maybe some of you have said yes sometimes. But as followers of Jesus wanting to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, we say, no, I can't do that. I can't live this way. I can't make that decision. I've got to do this instead. And that's why I'm saying sometimes we are outcasts. We have to be different because we are part of a different kingdom. And there's almost a spectrum that comes along with that. You know, sometimes you tell someone, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to do this instead. And they go, you're weird, man, but that's fine. And that's okay. But every now and then, in terms of our faith and what we believe and what we do, we are so at odds with the way of Durban that it's like treason. How can you not believe that? Or how can you believe that? How can you not join me in this? How can you say no? How can you say yes to this? Because the kingdom of Durban and the kingdom of heaven are so different. Or maybe this way. We might not think that we believe in a different gospel or that we trust in different gospels, but we all do from time to time. And that could be the gospels you see when you check out at the grocery store and there's a bunch of magazines and you're intrigued by the messages they're saying. Or it could be probably more likely for most of us, Instagram, just doing the scroll, going down, looking at those pictures, watching those stories and going,
1: I like that.
0: Like, you know, it might not line up with the gospel of Jesus, but we go, you know, I actually do believe that. I do like that. I do want that. I have put my hope in that. Maybe let me give you some examples. As you do the scroll, you go, you know what? If I owned that, I would be happier or I would be satisfied. I've definitely done that before. What about if I looked like that, I had that body, that hair, that makeup, those abs, then I would be worthy, then I would have value. Or what about success is salvation, you know? If I just get to the top of my career, if I just get that promotion, then I'll be saved. Or love and romance is salvation. I'm single, and if I had someone, then, then I'd feel saved. Or approval, if only I was liked only I was invited, if only I was included, if only I was applauded. Or I think this is something that's on the rise. If only I owned a Land Rover and I could just get away from the city. I could just drive out and just go and explore. Get away from the busyness of life. You know, just get away from just, oh, the city's just getting me down, man. I just want to go and hike and ride and explore and be truly free. Or maybe travel and exploring the world. To you, that's the meaning of life. I'm sure some of you guys are going, yeah, I believe that. Maybe you don't believe that more than Jesus' gospel, but you're going, I believe the gospel of the Land Rover. I believe the gospel of, I don't know, the good looks or love or romance or whatever it is. We might not use the religious words I'm using to describe those things, but we're still putting our hope and faith in them. You know, We believe if we had them, if we can achieve them, if we can receive them, whatever it is, then we'd find salvation or meaning or joy or satisfaction or hope or freedom. And those are the things that Paul is saying are only truly and fully found in Jesus. So let me end by going a few verses back to the well-known verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How, how would you fill in the blanks there? For me to live is dot, dot, dot. For me to die is dot, dot, dot. How how would you answer those questions? Honestly, I'm I'm not going to make you shout out to everyone. But honestly, in your heart tonight, how would you answer that? For instance, if you're saying living is success, getting to the top, hitting my target, reaching my goals, then for you, dying would be failure, missing the mark, not achieving what you wanted. If I fail, my life is over. Or what about power? If for you, life is power, then death would be weakness or being powerless. Or if for you, living is beauty, then you'd say, you know what? Death is feeling ugly, being called ugly, losing my looks, not feeling attractive. Or if for you, living is people's approval, then dying would be rejection or disapproval from people. don't know if you can relate to any of that. But Paul says to us that he wants us, Well, he wants to encourage us because he knows it's the best way to use our lives, to live our lives in such a way that they don't just impact now, but they impact what happens in a billion, trillion, gazillion years' time. If you say living is Christ, then you're able to say dying is gain. And this is why. If your life is Christ, then the sting of death is gone, and death actually becomes a desirable thing. I don't know if any of you can accept that tonight. But let me show you what I mean by that. Paul has become unstoppable because of this. Think of Paul writing this from a prison, not knowing what the future holds. Paul, a few times, wasn't sure if he was going to come out or if he was going to be executed. And you can imagine his guards wanting to torture him and make him suffer. So they say, Paul, we don't like you. We don't like that you're preaching this other king, this other kingdom, and this other gospel. So we're going to kill you. And Paul goes, guys that's amazing. (laughs) I know you don't believe it. But to me, if you end my life, I get to go and be with Jesus. And that is better than anything here. Thank you for doing me the privilege. I'm out. And they're a bit confused and they go, okay, we're not going to kill you then. You don't get your way. We're going to make you live. (laughs) And Paul goes, guys, you know what? I would rather die. But if you let me live, that's also great because I get to serve him. I get to serve as people and invest in them and do work that's going to impact eternity and it's so meaningful and good for me. And the gods are going, what is up with this guy? We kill him, he's fine. We let him live, he's fine. We're going to find a third way. We're going to make this guy suffer. And Paul goes, okay, I'm sure that's going to be really hard and unpleasant. No one likes suffering. I'm not a sadist. But if you do that, I want you to know But I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It'll be hard. I don't enjoy suffering. But I know that in my suffering, I'll find joy in Jesus and he will reward me for the difficult stuff you put me through. And these gods are just going, dude, like, what do we do with this guy? can't kill him. can't let him live. We can't punish him. He's, like, immune to it all. You see the power of this perspective, even for us at this time. We live through a very, very difficult period in our history. Kill me? I'll go to be with Jesus. Let me live, you know? I'll serve Jesus. I'll live for him. Make me suffer? Well, that's going to be tough. I don't want to pretend suffering's fine. But I'll experience joy in the midst of the suffering in him, and he'll reward me for it too. This is the unstoppable mentality of Paul. The man who calls himself a citizen of heaven... It says he wants to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I think for us, if we're able to adopt that mentality too, through a really tough time, that means life will become win-win for us. No matter what we face, no matter what we go through, you could be in the best period of your life. You could be in the worst. You could be suffering right now. No matter what you go through, we're able to say it is a win-win. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean I'm not going to bleed. Doesn't mean I'm not going to sweat. But to live as Christ and to die as gain. So Harbour City, as we end tonight, I want to ask you these four questions. Maybe just I can ask the band to come up and we're going to end in a time of worship. Maybe you can all stand to your feet.